0: And as you are seated, let me say good morning, Journey. Thank you, that one person in the back who was paying attention. Now listen, if we were playing a game of basketball right now, and I wanted to pass something to you, I need to make sure you were paying attention. So I I need to make sure, I've got some stuff to pass on to you today, I need to make sure you're paying attention. So good morning, Journey. Journey. There you go. Happy Father's Day to those of you who are dads and granddads and uh, future dads like Bryce down here. Um, and no, Charlotte's not pregnant yet, but I'm praying in the next year we, we're going to have some more babies in our church. Uh, you know, I was talking to Danielle this week, and, and I had, I did kind of an interesting math problem in my head this week, uh, because I told Danielle, you said, I, I told her, I said, you know, I made my first big um, decision as a father 16 years ago this summer. Actually, sixteen years ago, this month, I made my first big decision as a father and here 's what 's weird about that my, my son is eleven so five years before I had a son, um, I made one of the biggest parenting decisions of my life. You say, Christian, back, back that up and let me know how you how you did that well here 's a story that leads into that, which is why father 's day on so many levels is so important to me now, when I graduated from high school in southern Ohio and, and uh, headed off to Virginia to go to college. Uh, I majored my first year in pre-law. I love government. I loved history. I love social studies. Uh, My favorite teacher, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior year was the teacher in that class. I mowed his yard. I hung out with him before school, after school. So I just kind of gravitated to that. And one day we had career day at our school. Uh, And they said, you know, kind of, if you like these subjects, you can have these jobs and here's how much they pay. And I said, okay, I like history, government, social studies. And the one that paid the most was lawyer. So I thought, I'm going to go be an attorney. Um, in addition to that, I saw Tom Cruise convince Jack Nicholson to say that he ordered the code red. And I was like, that is, you know, like one day, that's what I want to do. Because I can handle the truth. And I am crystal clear. And, you know, that, that's what I want to do. I want to I be a courtroom attorney. That would be fun for me. So I did a year of pre-law my first year at Liberty University. And I came home for the summer, and dad said, uh, Christian, you really ought to, um, before you really dig into this, you need to go spend a day with a lawyer and make sure. Um, you know, not all of them are like Tom Cruise in, in uh, A Few Good Men or whatever that movie is called. Uh, so you might, you just, just see to make sure you like it. So he set up an appointment with, uh, with someone who had played football for him years ago, who was an attorney in Columbus, worked at a, a decent sized law firm. Uh, and I went up to Columbus and I hung out all day long with a lawyer. And I went to court with him and met with his clerks and pulled some paperwork for him and did some research for him. Uh, and we were sitting down eating lunch together and he said, what questions do you have for me about being? an attorney. Um, And I asked him a question which was a very normal question for me to ask, but he said he had never been asked this question in all of his years as an attorney. I said, how is family life as a lawyer? Uh, And he looked at me and he said, "Um, I have never had anyone ask me that question. And he said, I am probably not the best person to answer that question uh, because I've not done a very good job with mine. And he said, let me, um, let me connect you with a different guy in our firm this afternoon and you can ask him that question because he's the guy who really, if, uh, if there's a family man in our group, it's, it's him. Um, so I said, okay. So I, I came to learn that afternoon, there were six attorneys in the firm that I was kind of interning at for the day uh, and only one of those attorneys was still married. So none of the rest of them wanted to, to, ask, to answer that question for me. So at the end of the day, they sat me down with this one attorney who was still married um, and I just said, you know, how do you, how do you balance family life? Uh, my dad was my principal. He was my football coach. Um, even when I had my driver's license, I rode to school and home from school with him every day. My mom was a school teacher. When there was a snow day, we were all off. We had summers off. We had winter breaks off. We had spring breaks off. I mean, I, I grew up in such a great functional family my dad was and is my best friend. My dad was the best man in my wedding. Um, I, I love it because I, you know, I tell people, and, and you've heard me say, you know, Danielle, when we first met, tended to be late from time to time. She tended to be forgetful from time to time. So at our wedding, she was not only 30 minutes late, um, but, but she forgot my wedding ring. Uh, true story. So I'm getting married, and my dad's standing there behind me, and they say, you know, can we have the rings? And my dad hands me his wedding ring. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, Danielle forgot your ring. I was like, hey, you know, okay, that makes sense no big deal. So I actually got married with my dad's wedding ring. And the cool thing is after 14 years, Danielle's still a little late every now and then. She still forgets things every now and then. So we're we're still working through that. Um, But I knew at 19 that I wanted to be a dad to my kids like my dad was to me. So I asked him, how does it it work as an attorney? Um, and, And the guy said, here's what I do. He said, I try to spend one hour every week with each of my kids. And I said, wow, one hour a week with your kids? And he gave me what I now know is bad advice because I've met some attorneys who are the best moms and dads and Christians and people in the world. But at the time, I didn't know any better. And he said, Christian, um, he said, probably the the best attorneys don't make the best dads. And probably the best dads don't make the best attorneys. Um, So if that's something you're really passionate about, you may not want to do this. And when my dad picked me up that afternoon, I told my dad on the way home, um, it's more important for me to be you to my son than it is for me to... um be Tom Cruise one day in a courtroom, and I literally went home, filed the paperwork, and changed my major to go be a school teacher and a football coach like my dad, and ended up in ministry, but I knew at 19, being a dad was really important to me. So Father's Day is important to me, because it reminds me of the responsibilities I have. I was talking with one of our pastors this week about my Bible study outline for today, and he said, man, um, he said, how come it seems like on Mother's Day, you always make sure to honor Moms and on Father's Day you always make sure to challenge dads. Um, and I said I don't I don't know. Other than um, I I know all the moms would be mad at me if I didn't honor them, and a bunch of angry women is not a good thing to try to pastor. Um, and dads, you know, on Father's Day. Father's Day for me is a challenge of what I can do better. It's not a day for me to relax and, and enjoy being a dad. It's, it's a day for me to evaluate how I can do better. So that, that's kind of how I approach it, and that's kind of how I preach it. And as we work through the summer of this summer series that we're calling Bedtime Stories, The Life of Jesus. Everything this summer we're doing through the lens of Jesus. Who Jesus was, what he went, uh, where he went, what he did, how he reacted and um, interacted with people. So as I came to Father's Day, uh, I opened up the Gospels, and I said, I want to find some scripture where Jesus interacted with some dads. And I want to learn from Jesus and dads interacting together, And I found three instances in scripture that I thought were tremendously beneficial for dads, for granddads, I'll be honest with you, for moms, for grandmas, um, for single dads, for single moms, for widows and and widowers, for uh, just every Christian. I mean, really, the spiritual truth in this message goes way beyond dads, but the basis of it is Jesus and dads hanging out. So I want to show you three dads today and their interactions with Jesus uh, and how this works together. If you have your Bibles, I want you to mark chapter 9. Because that's where we're going to start is Mark chapter 9. If you don't have your Bibles, our ushers are going to come down the aisle and uh, give you a Bible. If, if you want one, you can just kind of wave at them and, and, uh, and they will give you something. But in, in Mark chapter 9, and if you don't have a Bible, feel free to keep this. And guys, I feel like the light just went off on the stage up here. If you can help me a little bit. Maybe I'm not, but I feel like the left side just went dark on me. Um, In Mark chapter 9, we meet what I just refer to simply as the duplicitous dad, if you're taking notes on the back of um, your bulletin today. We meet a dad who I don't describe him as duplicitous. He describes himself as being duplicitous. This is a dad who, um, who, who we find out wants one thing spiritually for his family, but the reality of what he lives is something else totally all together. And in Mark chapter 9, here's, um, here's what we read. We start in verse 14. We'll go through verse 24, and it says, When they... Now, if you want to circle they just for a little more in-depth study. This is Jesus, um, James, John, and Peter. They'd been up on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were coming down from, to, from the Mount of Transfiguration. So it was Jeter, uh, Jesus, Peter, James, and John. Four of them coming back to the other nine disciples. It says, When they came to the other disciples... They saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and they ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth. He becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you, and how long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It often has thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus said, everything is possible for the one who believes. So immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Now, you need to underline verse 24. Because we find in verse 24 someone who says with their mouth that they believe a whole lot more than their heart truly does. Jesus said, look, man, I can help you with anything if you'll just believe, if you'll just follow me, if you'll just put your faith in me. And the dad said, listen, man, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. He, he gives a duplicitous answer, I believe, but not with all my heart. I believe, but I need to believe more. I believe, his confession basically is this, and really it serves as a challenge to our mindset. His confession is this, I, I believe, but I'm not sure if my level of belief will be enough for my children. Like, I've got this religious standard that I follow, and I've got this religious comfort level that I live in, and I, I'm very comfortable with where I am spiritually But I'm not sure if where I am spiritually is enough for what my kids need spiritually. So, you know, I'm kind of where I am, but I guess you need to help me get the rest of the way there. And man, I find this so funny that we see a dad saying to Jesus, Listen, man, I've kind of been comfortable in my religious skin all my life. Right? We see him with the nine disciples. They would be probably noted at least scripture analysts. They would know how to answer some questions. They'd been around Jesus. They, they'd been doing the spiritual things. They were arguing with the scribes and Pharisees who would be the pastors and the deacons of the day. I mean, this man went to the religious circles he knew. He went to the religious people that he knew. And up until this point in his life, a little religion had been enough for him. But all of a sudden, it wasn't enough anymore. All of a sudden, a little religion did not have the answers to a lot of problems. And I I don't know about you, but every now and then I find myself in a lot of problem. And it's at those moments where being deeply connected to Jesus has to be the answer, not just sitting in church every now and then on a Sunday morning. When's the last time you experienced a big problem that a little religion did not answer for you? It's interesting that I'm preaching through Mark chapter 9 this Sunday because uh, Wednesday of this week I was sitting at Panera Bread at 150. 103rd and state line, with a pastor friend of mine who pastors a church down on the plaza. Uh, And we were just sitting talking. His church will be three years old this September. Our church will be two years old. So we are just exchanging notes on kind of how churches progress, and office space, and management stuff, and leadership, and volunteers, and on and on and on. And in the middle of the conversation, he said, Christian, I, I think that guy behind you is having a seizure. And I turned around, and sure enough, there was a guy probably in his late 20s, maybe early 30s, I mean, that was having a full-on seizure that sounded and looked like this. I mean, he was completely seized up. His arms and his legs were completely straight. He had knocked everything off his table. His eyes had rolled back in his head. He had bit something in his mouth, so he was not only foaming at the mouth, but he had blood dripping off his chin. And Kyle grabbed me and he said, you call 911. And he went over with some men and began to try to get this man who was shaking horrendously out of the booth, onto the floor, turning sideways. Someone there must have known that that was the thing to do. And I'm on the phone with 911 saying, here's where I am. We need an ambulance. There's a guy having a seizure. And she started rattling through these questions. Well, how long has the seizure been going on? I don't know. Um, well does the man have any medical problems? I, I don't know him. Um, well does he have diabetes? I said I don't, I'm just a customer here. I don't know. And I, I felt absolutely helpless and overwhelmed. As this guy, like we didn't know if he was going to die. We didn't know what was happening. The manager was running around and, and we did what pastors can do once we finally knew the ambulance was on its way. We just got down and started praying over him. And as this poor man was just seizing, great shape, kind of tatted up, bald, pretty muscular, and he's having this seizure, and he's got blood coming out of his mouth, and we're not sure what's going to happen, we just started praying over him. And it was like at that time, a little religion wasn't going to do much for me. Have you ever had a time where a little religion just doesn't do enough for you? You know, I, I had a week this week, which I don't have often. We, we, we kind of had one of those weeks where... Um, kind of we had a perfect storm financially, we had some things break, we had to buy some things, we had a holiday followed by a state baseball tournament. Have you ever had a time where um, one paycheck only gets you to like three days before the next paycheck and not all the way there with kind of the way you manage your money and you find yourself on Tuesday? And like you don't get paid until Friday and you're kind of out of money for the next four days. Have you ever had those weeks where you go digging in the couch cushions or, you know, you may or may not steal from your kids if they have some money in their room. Um, you know, you're looking for stuff in the floorboard of the car. I mean, it's kind of like one of those one of those weeks. Um, and, and at the same time, uh, we, we've got a lot of church stuff going on. I mean, big organizational pushes. We've, we've been looking seriously at, at at purchasing some high-level office and midweek meeting space, we we kind of put an initial offer on some land down the road a little bit. I mean, it's like there's like big pressure um, this week in life that I'm living. I had kind of a theological quandary a couple that I was dealing with in our church um, who they asked a question of me that I didn't know how to answer, so I called three or four pastors. I actually called four pastors, and two of them said, do this, and two of them said, do the exact opposite. And it was kind of of like I just had to kind of wrestle through it with God, and I was mowing my yard because that's one of the things that, that helps me relieve stress, is I love to work in the yard. And I, you know, if, if, uh, if I could just get on a tractor and go drive around someone's, if someone has 40 or 50 acres in a tractor, and every now and then I could just go drive around on it, that would help me spiritually, because I enjoy being outside on a tractor. And I, and I was moving my backyard, and I just had this thought. I thought, man, being an adult stinks sometimes. Like... You know, remember the days when you could go order a Happy Meal and you didn't even know how much it cost and you didn't weren't worried about it and like mom and dad just paid for it and you went to the gas station and your dad let you pump the gas or wash the windshield wipers and you didn't realize you had to pay for that and you had to be paid for what you were paying for that and I just thought, man, like growing up is hard and there are, like I'm facing major decisions in my life this week, major stress in my life this week And I had to turn to prayer, and I had to turn to some of my Christian friends. I had to turn to my relationship with Jesus. And I thought, you know what? A little bit of faith wouldn't have done me much good last week. I needed a lot. And I see this dad bring his son to Jesus, and Jesus said, listen, for me to really impact your son's life, like you need to go from where you are spiritually to here. And the dad basically said, I know where I am, and for the first time in my life, I understand where I have to go, and just helped me. I understand that who I am spiritually is not who I need my kids to be, so help me learn how to get there. And I want to tell you, man, if you're a dad in here, if you're a mom in here, if you're a a coach in here, if you're a teacher in here, if you have people you want to influence spiritually, and you want them to become great spiritually, guess what? You're going to have to become great spiritually. And we see this dad kind of maybe admitting for the first time in his life, you know, I've been kind of comfortable where I am spiritually, but clearly that's not good enough for my kids. So Jesus helped me go to the next level. And I see Jesus dealing with that dad, and it challenges me as a Christian dad. Secondly, I look in Scripture, and I try to find Jesus dealing with dads, and I see just simply what I refer to as a determined dad. This guy would kind of be the exact opposite of the duplicitous dad. This is a guy who kind of will do whatever it takes to get his family, to get his kids to where they need to be spiritually. In Luke chapter 8, we meet this dad. His name is Jairus. Uh, what's cool about this dad, for those of you who have been to Israel, for those of you who are going to Israel this year or next May, and every year we'll go to Israel, and it would be my goal that everyone sitting here today one day goes to Israel to retrace the steps of Jesus. But this this man Jairus was the synagogue ruler, which means he kind of ran the church. He was maybe the maintenance guy at the church of the synagogue in Capernaum that I have stood in, that I have walked in. Um, this man just a year ago or less, had seen Jesus uh, teaching in that synagogue, and someone came in with a withered hand, and Jesus healed him. So this this man knew Jesus could do some supernatural things in his life if he was close enough to him. And as we enter the narrative, we find out that this man's daughter, he's coming to Jesus as a dad, his daughter needs Jesus' help. And here's what we find out in Luke chapter 8. We start in verse 40, go to 42, and then we'll jump to verse 49. It says, now when Jesus returned... So he returned home. This was Capernaum. A crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. And Jesus was on his way, and the crowds almost crushed him. Skip down to verse 49. So Jesus has an interaction with the crowd, and then somebody comes to Jesus and says, while Jesus was still speaking... Someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter's dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. It's really interesting when we look at Jairus here. We see a man in a desperate situation who is determined. Regardless of what anyone else thinks, regardless of what anyone else says, regardless of what anyone else would want him to do or counsel him to do, we see a dad who is determined to get Jesus to his kids so that they can impact him. And I want to be honest with you, the thing that stands out to me is is verse 53 of Luke chapter 8. When he walked in with Jesus and kind of said, hey, here's what's going on, it says they laughed at him. And for some reason, I feel like maybe one of the biggest impacts of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, really the first impact of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when they when they experienced separation from God, they also experienced at the same time this this shame of being really self-aware of what people thought of them, what God thought of them, of how they were being perceived. They got real kind of insecure emotionally. And I believe that that, that more than anything, I, I think, really continues to drive people spiritually. And it drives what our kids see in us spiritually. And I, I think this is just natural that... We have this over-awareness of what people think about us. Let me give you an example. If you go out to eat today as a family on Father's Day, and you're sitting around the table, or you go home and eat, or you're at a restaurant, more than likely, if it's just you and your family, you'll probably stop and pray and bless the meal. Because that's what your family does, and it's very natural. However, if you were out with a group of families from your kid's baseball team, or if you were out with a group of people from work. Or if you went to a businessman's luncheon and they served the meal, there would be this check in your spirit of, huh, you know, what will people think if I stop to bless the food? So we just, we kind of we skip over that. It's that little innate fear and self-awareness that's there. Let me give you another example. Because this, this is just, it's born into us in our DNA. This week my son played in um, a state baseball tournament in Columbia, Missouri. And most of you know Columbia, Missouri is the home of the University of Missouri. Well, Christian was born and raised in Kansas. He's a big KU fan. And he told me when we drove into Columbia, Columbia, he said, Dad, I I brought all my KU hats and t-shirts to wear around Columbia because it's my duty as a KU fan to wear those around Missouri. And I said, like, good luck, man. If you want to do that, you can do that. And he talked a pretty big game until we got downtown on campus. Um, And he stepped out of the car and he had on his KU baseball hat. And uh, there was a big concert going on in town. So there were students and kind of people everywhere. Every shop was black and gold. Um, And he put on his hat and I, I watched him as we walked from the car to the restaurant to go eat with the rest of our baseball team. He was walking like this with his hand covering the Jayhawk on the front of his hat. And I look at him and said, what are you doing? And he's like, nothing. And I was like, why are you covering up the Jayhawk? And he's like, well, you know, I don't, I don't know what people think. I said, listen, nobody's going to bother you. Relax. So we go and eat. And, of course, everyone on the team is stealing his hat, throwing it on the floor, throwing it in the bathroom, uh, which they thought was great fun. But after we ate, there was a big country concert, kind of free, out on the streets. Um, and it was filled with, I mean, thousands, probably, of students from the um, from zoo. And uh, as, as we walked to that, uh, I looked down at Christian as he was there, and he didn't have his hat on at all. And he was kind of walking with his arms at his side, and I looked at him, and I said, um, where's your hat? And he looked at me like, what hat? And he had tucked it in the back of his shirt and completely covered it up. And I was like, why aren't you wearing your hat? He's like, Dad, I can't let them see me wearing a hat. And, and he had this fear, this over-awareness of, what, Dad, what are people going to think here if they know that, uh, that I like KU. You know, I have experienced, because I did youth ministry for eight years, I have experienced a high level of self-awareness in parents when their kids really get turned on to Jesus. That's uncomfortable. And I have been a part of relationships with families where parents have told kids, listen, you need to quit taking your Bible to school, and you need to take that Christian bracelet off. And like, you got to get all those Christian CDs out of your car because they don't want people to think of their family as kind of the the weird Christian family. One of the saddest stories in the 15 years of ministry that I have been a part of was a young man who came into our ministry the summer of his sophomore year. He was a kid who at 14, 15 years old struggled a lot with drugs and alcohol. I mean, a lot with drugs and alcohol. Uh, and, And his dad forced him to go to youth camp with us. He went to youth camp with us, um, and and, man, he became a Christian, and like became a radical Christian, and started reading his Bible every day, Uh, and he quit going to parties, uh, and he started carrying his Bible. Like every day to school, he would take a little Bible with him, and he'd set it on the corner of his desk. He started a Bible study at the lunch hour of his school, and and he would sit, and he'd try to teach other kids the Bible uh, at lunch. He decided that he wanted to be a youth pastor, and he wanted to go to a Christian college and I mean I have never seen before or since someone sell out so much for Jesus as this kid. He went from almost failing to straight A's. I mean everything in his life was going good and as he got ready to begin his senior year, some parents got around his mom and dad at the country club and they said, man we heard your son is like flipped out and like our kids are talking about it, he won't go to parties anymore and you know he's saying all this stuff is wrong and he carries his Bible and like, what's the deal with your kid? And this dad got so embarrassed by this, people laughing at him, people thinking weird things about him, that he came home and told his son. He said, listen, man, the whole school thinks you're a Jesus freak. And he said, it's, it, it's just weird. And he said, so, so here's the deal. You can keep going to church. That's cool. But you're not allowed to take your Bible to school anymore because it's just weird. And, um, and, and listen... You don't have to drink and smoke pot, but like at least once a month, you have to go to a party with these friends. You've been friends with them since kindergarten. At least once a month, you have to just be the designated driver, just go. But you, you, can't, you can't be who you are because people, they think, they think our family, he used the word to a son, he said, they think we're Jesus freaks. Within a year, that kid had quit coming to youth ministry altogether. He'd gotten totally engaged in his old life. He went away to a secular college to pursue something other than youth ministry. He flunked out of his first semester of college. He enrolled in another college. He got kicked out because of drug and alcohol abuse. He enrolled in a third college, got kicked out because of drug and alcohol abuse, and and spent a 90-day stint in drug and alcohol rehab because his dad was embarrassed at his level of passion and his faith. Now listen to me, parents. I don't know how far your kids are running with Jesus But don't ever tell them to slow down, right? I mean, are you with me here? I mean, don't ever tell them that they're a little weird. Don't ever tell them that they're reading their Bible too much. Don't ever tell them that God didn't want anyone to be a pastor. Don't ever tell them that they should be going to parties. Don't ever tell them that they ought to drink a little bit or smoke a little bit of pot. I mean, that's just stupid, right? Right? I mean, so we see a dad here whose confession is this. I don't care what anyone thinks of my need for Jesus. If only I can get his touch into my kids' lives. And we see Jairus say, listen, I don't care what people think of me. You can laugh at me. You can say she's dead. You can say it's over. You can call me foolish. I don't care what you think of me. My little girl needs Jesus. So I'm going to be determined to get him there. You know, I love what Joshua says in Joshua 24:15, one of the most famous verses in the Old Testament. And I love how Joshua approached it. Joshua was one of the greatest leaders in Israel's history. He's one of the greatest leaders. He, he apprenticed under Moses, and then he was the one who went in and led the conquest of the land. He was the Norman Schwarzkopf of, of Israel. Um, and he stood up at the end of his life and basically said this, Listen, everyone has to choose for themselves what they're going to do spiritually. You've got to choose it. Like, if you want to choose to serve the gods from the other side of the river, the gods of the Amorite, you can do whatever you want. I'm not going to make your decision for you. I'm not even going to be judgmental about the decisions that you make. But you need to know this. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. I'm not going to be ashamed. I'm not going to hide that. I'm not going to throw it in your face, but you're going to know where I stand. I'm going to be determined that me and my house are going to serve the Lord. You see, when we get determined to see Jesus' impact in the lives of our kids significantly, we won't let the actions or reactions of people derail us. We won't let what our neighbors say, what our coworkers say, what our family members say, what our kids' coaches say, what our kids' teachers say. We won't let that derail us spiritually. We'll like Joshua say, "Listen, I respect you and everything you're saying, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You can root for whoever you want to. I'm going to wear my KU hat. Uh, you know that—that's what Christian was saying in Columbia. This is who I am, and deal with it until he was afraid, and then he took it off and hid it under his shirt. But we see a determined dad. We see a duplicitous dad. We see a determined dad. Let me ask you, Dad. Which one are you, duplicitous or determined? Duplicitous or determined? Because we see Jesus hanging out with both of these type of dads, and he's got a desire to get into both of their families. He just needs dads to rise to the level. But then we see number three, uh, and and this is uh, going to be in a spiritual sense, but we see a delighted dad. And here we don't see Jesus hanging around with a dad, but we see Jesus hanging around with his father. And we see Jesus in the role of son. We see God the Father in the role of father. And we see a father who is like super happy with his kids. We see a father who has like puffed his chest out at who his kids are spiritually. And here's what we learn. And I'm going to give you a 30-second sermon that last year took me 30 minutes to give. But every year on Father's Day, we need to be reminded of this. It says in Mark chapter 1, verses 9-11, through 11, At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. And he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Listen, there are three phrases that every dad, that every mom needs to say to their kids every day, and you need to write these down. God modeled us. God the Father modeled us to this, modeled this for us to Jesus, his son. And here are the three phrases you need to say every day to your kids so that they know that you are a delighted dad, a delighted mom. You need to say these phrases. Number one, you're mine. God said of Jesus, you are my son. I claim you. You're mine. You're part of me. Number two, I love you. Phrase number one, you are mine. Phrase number two, I love you. You are my son whom I love. Phrase number three, I'm proud of you. Man, every dad, every day, every mom, every day, if not every day, every week needs to be reminding your kids, you're mine. Man, I claim you, and I love you, and I'm proud of you. And God did that for Jesus at his baptism. But I want you to see what Jesus did for God at his baptism. Because we see Jesus in the actions of a son. You know, when you look at Jesus baptized, you say, "Why did Jesus get baptized?" Let me ask you this question: Why did you get baptized? For those of you who have been baptized, why did you get baptized? I bet there are a dozen different answers to that question in this room today. Why did you get baptized? Why did Jesus get baptized? If we're supposed to be followers of Jesus, then we're supposed to do things that Jesus did for the reasons that Jesus did. Then why did Jesus get baptized? We read in Mark chapter 1 verses 1 through 5, and I'm just going to cut into um, verse 4 for those who are running the screen back there. It says, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So we see why those people were baptized, but why was Jesus baptized? Was Jesus baptized because he needed forgiveness for his sins, yes or no? No, Jesus never sinned, according to the Bible. Was Jesus baptized because he had to repent and change the way he was living, yes or no? No. So when we study theologically the baptism of Jesus, why was Jesus baptized? What did it do? How did this son honor his father through the baptism? We see four reasons theologically that Jesus would have been baptized. One, it was a clear identification with God's call on his life. I have come to serve God, I have come to be used of God, I have come to minister to people in God's name. So when we say, why was Jesus baptized? His baptism was an identification with God's call on his life. I'm going to do what God has called me to do. The book of Psalms says the Messiah will come, and God will designate the Messiah with the phrase, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That happened at his baptism. So Jesus said, I am here, and I am identifying with who God has called me to be. Number two, Jesus' baptism was a public honoring of God by choice, in the presence of those he would live, live life with. So Jesus didn't need to be forgiven of his sins. He didn't need to be cleansed of his sins. He didn't need to change his life. But he wanted to publicly honor God in front of people who he would live life with. His future disciples were there. His cousin John was there. Perhaps his mother and John's mother, his aunt, were there. They seemed to be around everywhere. And he goes into the river to, buy his bapti- baptism, saying, I want to honor God because I'm choosing to. And I want people to know that I'm going to follow God's plan for my life. We, we find out that his baptism, bullet point three, was catalytic to the life of ministry that he'd been called to. You say, what does that mean? It means it started the greatest chapter of his life. If you were to ask people to describe and define Jesus' ministry on earth, they would say it began at his baptism, it ended as his ascension. So his baptism was the starting line. His baptism was the starting gun of saying, I am now running the rest of my life, my race, with Jesus. And his baptism, and I love how Mark puts this, he kind of copies it from Isaiah, but Jesus' baptism got things straight. I love that. It just got things straight for the journey ahead. We read that John came to make things straight, to prepare the way. What does that mean, make things straight? It literally meant this. This phrase is a phrase that's 2,000 years old that was used when a king would travel to a country that he ruled but he was not always in. Remember, this was the day before highways. This was the day before paved roads. This was the day before concrete. And you're going on a rough gravel road, and there's dirt in the road, and there's probably horse dung and donkey dung in the road, and the weeds are growing up. And before the king would come in, there was an official term that the city would come, and they would make straight the pass for the king. They literally would straighten up. They would clean up their life. That was the thought. We're just getting everything ready for the king to be in our midst. Jesus' baptism put things in order and got things ready. It straightened things out so he could live the rest of his life honoring what God had called him to do. Now, I want to ask you a question. Go back on the screen to those four things that Jesus' baptism did. And I just want to ask you questions. I just want to ask you questions. When you look at your baptism, because we have people who were baptized in here before they were a year old. They don't even remember it. We have a lot of people in here who were baptized before they were five or six years old. And I asked a question. On May 19th, we did our survey. And I said, how many people do we have in our church that were baptized very young? They don't have a high remembrance of it. It wasn't one of the highlights of their life spiritually. How many of those do we have that would consider being baptized, what we call, to the, to the glory of God? Being baptized not for what it does for you, but what it does to honor God. in the prayer? How many do we have? And 54 people in our church said, I kind of fall into that category. Baptized very young, don't remember it a whole lot, wasn't a really big deal for me spiritually, and I would consider as a stake in the ground for my next phase of life, being baptized. I would ask, did your baptism identify with God's call on your life? Was your baptism a, publicly, a public honoring of God that you chose, not your parents, but you chose to do? Go to the next one. Um, was your baptism catalytic to your life of ministry? Could you say from my baptism forward, I lived life for Jesus like I'd never lived before? And number four was, was your baptism, uh, did it kind of get things straight for the rest of your life? Now, if not, as we on Father's Day look at how to be great dads and look at how to honor Father God, As we look at the next steps, I I would ask these questions. If your baptism did not fall into a Jesus baptism category, would you consider being baptized to the glory of God this summer? You say, what exactly does that mean? I mean, would you get baptized to honor God, not what it does for you, but what it does for God to say, I'm one of his, if you've not done that yet? Would you consider that? Maybe number two, maybe because, maybe, you know, that we had 54 people that said, I fall into that category, which means that day we probably had a couple hundred who said, I don't fall into that category. Okay, what's the message for you? Maybe bullet point number two for moms, for dads, for teenagers, for college kids, for all of us in general, maybe we need to stop caring so much what others think about our faith, and we just need to get real dependent upon God. And we need, you know, we don't need to talk negative about people. We don't need to judge them. We don't need to put them down. We can say, you, you can do whatever you want, but for me in my house, like for me, I'm going to follow Jesus pretty seriously. Or maybe today you're a parent who has a tremendous desire, maybe even a tremendous need for God to do something in your kid's life, but what, what you want him to do in your kids, he's never done in you. And maybe today you realize, and I'll be honest with you, after doing youth ministry for eight years and being a youth pastor to thousands of kids, your kids will never love Jesus more than you do. They might get more involved in church than you are, but your kids will never really love Jesus Monday through Friday more than you do. That's just, that's just true for the most part. Maybe today you need to get all in for the sake of your kids or at least realize that your level of belief is, and what's needed of your level of belief, there, there's a little distance between the two that you've, that you've got to close. See, I don't know where you are today, but I know for me being a dad and for me being a pastor, it's it's challenging for me. And I want to get it right because we got one shot at it. And I want to be for my kids who I want them to be. I don't just want to lead them where I haven't been, but I want to, I want to lead them to be who I am. I want to get all in and, and I want to try to be more cautious about caring so much what others think of me. And listen, I, I'm not saying this is a sinful thing. I'm just saying we need to be aware of this. I've had this happen just in the last month where I've been at places where I thought, ugh, you know, and I'm a pastor. If I prayed, would it offend? If I did this, if I did this, and I, you know, I've just, I've chosen to kind of hide behind the trees like Adam and Eve, and I've thought, Lord, forgive me for thinking more about what people care about me than what you, than what you think about me. Um, or maybe today, God is stirring your heart to say, you need to have a big spiritual moment. And this moment is your baptism, and you need to, you need to publicly declare you're going to go all the way with God. And it's not in doing anything in your past, but, boy, it's adding a great spiritual memory to your present that will straighten things up for the rest of your life and what God has called you to do. Today, you need to ask God, what are you speaking to my heart about? And you need to pursue that thing.